0: in preparation for our marriage conference i'm challenging you and we're challenging each other to see the elephants in the room to face our elephants for the sake of our family it's a it's a strange image for some of you it's a crazy image to see an elephant in a room but the image is totally absurd to make a point that is we all every one of us whether you're married or single whether you have a biological family or the church is your family your family has issues, and as Christians, we have both our credentials and the confidence, 1 Corinthians thirteen, twelve: We are known by the Lord, and therefore, we're able to face even the hardest things to face in the most intimate spaces of our life. And so, as you prepare for our evening together, our weekend together on the 5th and 6th of October, we're challenging one another to face the elephants for the sake of our families, And just this week, I met with somebody, and they were um, trying to deal with the elephant, elephants, little herd of elephants that they saw. And they were just overwhelmed. And they said, well, how do I start? And I said, slowly, (laughs) step by step. And each week at worship, we're just allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us one more step to take to face our elephants for the sake of our family. So if you're willing and able, let's see our elephants. Would you stand? And I'll read to us from Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, and we'll go down to chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the God, to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, For the wrongdoer will be paid for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Every family has a culture. The most intimate spaces in our life are often those spaces in our home. One of you came over to my house yesterday, and you walked in my front door. I was so glad to see you. (laughs) And uh, there was a movie going on that was probably too loud. Uh, Two of my kids were screaming over the same toy. We had two extra children in our house and an extra dog in our house. Uh, It was like utter chaos. You know, have you ever seen *Cheaper by the Dozen* with uh, Steve Martin? You know that that scene in *Cheaper by the Dozen*. You know where like the electrician comes to your house to his house, and you got like the kids who are like playing roller hockey in the top floor, and you've got like the the one of the children like huddled in the closet because his younger brother is wielding an axe and is chopping through the door, and there are kids everywhere. And the electrician looks at Steve Martin in the movie, and he goes, "Mister, you are in over your head." And I could see in in your face yesterday when you were at my house, I could just see your face as we were talking together just turn from this like, oh my gosh, to this wry smile where you begin to say, I am so thankful that my preacher's family is just like mine. Crazy. Every family has a culture. And I wonder what you would say if, we were to be a part of your family culture for a week, what would we say your vision is of the good life? Every family faces pressures. And every family has practices. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul shows us in this passage is that there were pressures and that there were practices of the ancient church. And Paul commends, in the midst of their pressures, he commends to them certain practices. So what I want to try to do today is I want to try to show you what was the context of the Greco-Roman society in which the ancient church was pulled out of and what were the principles and practices that the apostle Paul called them to live by amidst a radically pagan world? And let's take those as analogies for ourselves because they are commanded also to us. And let's say in midst of our modern culture, our modern families, what are the principles and the practices that we ought to face amidst the pressures that compete for our attention? Sound good? All right, so let's do it together. There are pressures on gospel-centered families, and there are practices of gospel-centered families, and we see both of those here in Colossians chapter 3.18 down through verse 1. First, the pressures on a gospel-centered family. Colossians is one of those books that Paul writes while he's in prison. He writes it to a people he did not know who were in a church he did not plant. Colossians was planted by a man named Epaphras who was from Colossae and had gone to visit Paul in prison during his first uh, uh, imprisonment, his first prison sentence. And Epaphras was telling Paul all about his church. He said, in general, Paul, the, the church is doing awesome, but they're facing immense pressure from the Roman society that is making and tempting some of the families to turn away from the gospel. And so, Paul writes this book to encourage them in how awesome they're doing, but also to address the pressures that they face and to encourage them in certain practices. And so, the whole point of the letter is that Paul is trying to teach them how to live in a radically subversive way in light of the gospel amidst the competing pressures of the Roman world. And they were facing pressures from two primary sources— on the one hand, on the far left, you might say, there were new Christians who grew up worshiping Greek and Roman gods money, power, wealth, sex, upward mobility, music, you name it. And the Roman had a god for it. And they were using Jesus just as one more of those gods to add to their pantheon. And so, we think about our own context today what's different? <laughs> well, not much. I mean, for example, we've got the sports god. Like, if, you, if, you, if your child is not in sports in Owasso, Oklahoma, like, there's a word that many people don't say out loud, but they, they think, well, he's different. Because what's normal is that they play sports. And heaven forbid you don't give your chance, your, your, your little son or daughter a little chance to run out onto the Owasso football field before a game. I mean, oh my gosh, you're depri- listen, there's a culture of athleticism in Owasa and in Oklahoma and all of Tulsa that has become, for many families, a god. Well, what about the religious gods? I mean, if your family is not a part of a local church in this town, you're automatically marginalized, regardless of what you actually believe. Do you know what I'm saying? I've told this story many times, but the very first realtor I met in town, I was asking them about uh, what do you tell new realtors or or people who move to the town? How do they get involved? And and the realtor said, I tell people who work for me that they must first join a church because it is impossible in this town to sell a house unless you're part of a local church. And so the pressure on families to be part of a, a local church community creates a kind of religious culture, which our children see with much clearer eyes than many of the adults. And they see the hypocrisy in the church because they're just there because they're, you have to be there to be accepted in our culture. But let me ask you a question. What does that therefore mean, that we teach our children about the purpose of the church if the only reason we're at church is for economic gain or for upward social mobility? And friends, listen, it is, it is sometimes, it is hard. You pay a little bit of a social price coming to worship in a school. And you hear it all the time. People will say to you, when are you going to get a real church? Well, hopefully soon, by the way. We'll tell you more about later this fall. But, but when are you going to have a building? Meaning that the church really isn't a church until you have a beautiful building that we can then go to. And we can become part of this religious subculture of the town. One day when we have a building... There will be people who come to Trinity in droves because Trinity is kind of the place to go to church in order to have upward mobility. But Lord Jesus, may you always protect us from that culture that we keep the gospel centered in our church no matter how big our church gets and that Christ can be the center of it. And that while people may come for whatever reason, even some people have come today, we know that the heartbeat of our church is the finished work of Jesus, not the gods of the religious subculture that we all serve if we're not careful. Or what about the God of education? Where are you going to send your child to school? Are you going to send them to public school? Or if you do, which one is the best public school? If you're going to send them to private school, which one is the best? Or are you going to keep them at home and homeschool them? Which is the best? I mean, and when Lauren and I were in New York City earlier this summer visiting some friends, they were moving out of the city because the cost of kindergarten was so high that they couldn't afford to live in New York anymore because they, and they had gotten their child when they first became pregnant. They got their child on the waiting list, and they got into the kindergarten that they wanted to in New York City, but they couldn't afford it once they got in. And in the same way, we don't have to get our kids on kindergarten lists when they're still in utero, But we still think and pray and try to position ourselves to please the God of education, whatever it might be. The first thing that the Colossians faced was they they faced pressure from a kind of mystical polytheism, the pantheon of gods of the Roman world, and we have the same ones today. Second thing they faced pressure from was it from the left, it was from the right. And they faced pressure in the ancient world from Jewish law keeping. There were Jews, Messianic Jews, Jews who grew up as as good and dutiful Jews who understood that Christ was the Messiah, and they came to faith in Jesus, and it was awesome. But they began to believe that in order for us to be real Messiah followers, we have to follow the entirety of the Old Testament law, and so they were pressuring the church in Colossae to then go and follow the civil and ceremonial laws, and this was causing angst in the church. And isn't it the same today? Today? I mean, you have people all the time who say, I want to go to church and not only do I want to go to church, but I want to be good at going to church. I mean, I'm going to, go, I'm going to be the best church goer there is. I'm going to get every star in the chart I can get. And you begin to fall back into a kind of works righteousness by which you believe that not only you're going to church, but doing the commands of Scripture commend you to God. And that God shows you more grace whenever you keep His law better. But we know that that is not the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is that God loves, we love God because He first loved us. It is by grace that you've been saved. And what we are called to do in life is to make grace great. Not by trying to dutifully obey every Old Testament law, but by joyfully obeying the moral law that he's given to us in light of what he's already done for us and accomplished for us. Amen? Amen? He has finished everything for us. And so Jesus was the fulfillment of that Old Testament law in every way. And so Paul says to them, don't give in to the Jewish law keeping. Yes, we should keep the moral law. But we do not keep the moral law because it makes God love us more. He has given us all the grace he can possibly give us. He cannot possibly love us anymore because we're in him. So please, please, please obey what the Lord calls us to do. Yes. But do it out of a sense of joyful gratitude for what he has already accomplished for us in Christ. Do not obey the law in order for him somehow to owe you because of your obedience. And this is not how it works. As Christians, we're called to keep the moral law, but we're not called to keep the uh, civil and ceremonial law. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, wrote this. The future of human, of human family rides on a promise spoken and not forgotten. You saw it on the front of your bulletin today. You can turn there and look at it with me if you'd like to. Page three. What other gods could we have besides the Lord? Well, plenty, Packer writes, for Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods whose worship was a rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. For us, there is still the great God, sex, shekels, and stomach, an unholy trinity consist, uh, constituting one God, the self. And other enslaving trios are pleasure, possessions, and position whose worship is described as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life in First John chapter 2. Football, oh, Packer, why did you have to say that? It's convicting. Football, the firm, and family are also gods for some. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god, and the claimants for this prerogative are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. We cannot demand from others more than Jesus demands of them. That is not the gospel. That is satanic. On the one hand, you're not to live for the pantheon of gods that exist in the modern world. And on the other hand, Paul instructs us not to keep the law because by doing so, we're trying to earn our salvation. We keep it because of what he's already done for us. And we live in this tension. Now, what are the practices that Paul now enjoins to us as Christian families in the midst of the pressures that we face? And we could all sit around, and maybe we will in community groups soon, we could all talk about the pressures that we face. Financial pressures, family pressures, performance pressures at work, at school. But Paul gets really practical, and he shows us that in light of the new humanity that he has that we have been called out of, ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. He shows us what it might look like in a first century Roman family. And he shows us the completely shocking ways that the church families were different than the surrounding cultures. How? First, number one, there was equal dignity among the members of the family. Now, that might not knock your socks off, but I promise you for the Colossians hearing this, it was shocking to hear Paul address wives directly. Because in the ancient world, husbands had complete authority over that home. They determined the life and the death of members in that family. If a husband did not want a child in that family, he had the right as a Roman citizen to leave that child exposed he had complete rights over his wife. It was a horribly patriarchal society. And it was a, it was horrible. And notice Paul here addresses wives and he says it was shocking for him to say that. He says the wife is to encourage the husband to be responsible. He's saying to the wife, listen, wife, you know, back in Genesis chapter 1, it says, let us make man in our own image, male and female. There's equal dignity here. You are equal, not equivalent, but you're equal. You have total dignity under the Lord. And the husband is to be subject to Jesus by loving his wife and placing her well-being above his own. And we find the closest parallels to what Paul does here in the household hold codes, which is what this section is called is found in the Stoics. And in the Stoics, in the ancient Near East, they wrote household codes like this by which they were to, uh, to live. And they based their household codes on nature. And they would say things like, because the husband, because the husband has authority over the home, he is to rule it. That's all it says. (laughs) There are no rights extended to the wife or to the children. It is the law of nature, the Stoics would say, that men who in the Stoics' eyes were the stronger sex should therefore uh, lead their families with no regard for their wives' opinion. For they thought the wives actually were second class citizens. It was horrible. And the Romans adopted this idea, and Paul says, no! Men and women together are equal unto the Lord, and they should be accorded rightful respect equal in dignity, equal in the Imago day. The word submission here is not of a slave or of a doormat. It is that there is equality in the eyes of the Lord. The wife must forego the temptation to rule her husband's life, and the husband must ensure that his love for his wife, like Christ's love for the church, always puts her interests first. Again, against the Evil of the Greco-Roman patriarchy and submission. Paul shows that marriage is a context of mutual respect and love. And the word he uses here for submission is radical. We read it with patriarchal eyes, but don't do that. It is radical. It is saying, wives, you are to submit to the Lord. You are to call Him to be responsible as the leader that the Lord has given to this home. You are not to rule over him, wife, but husbands, neither are you to subjugate your family under your authority without regard for them as equal persons of dignity and strength. They're made also in the image of God. Second, if it was shocking that Paul addressed women directly, how much more shocking would it be that he he addressed children? Which teaches us something about the ancient church, doesn't it? Where would this letter have been read? It, will prob- it would have probably have been read by Tychicus, as we know from the end of the book. It would have been ro- uh, read in worship. And Paul assumes that who is in worship with them? Well, the children. So they could hear, they could see their parents in worship. It's another sermon, but it's evident in addressing them directly that they were there present with the people as they listened. In a home where Jesus is the Lord, children are not objects, but they are called to maturity and respect. And parents are to raise their children with patience and understanding. I'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. But children need to be disciplined. That's what verse 20 says. But notice verse 21. Parents need to be disciplined too. Read them both together. And refusing to allow a child to be his own person is to embitter them and to provoke them. Ch- parents, your children are not little yous. They are little thems. And so we're going to try to help them grow up and be raised according to the gifts that he has given them, as tempting as it is to make little yous. We don't need another you. We need a them. And so we need to, as parents to know how to help them be the best them that God has created them to be. And that takes a village, and it is extremely hard, but that is what we're trying to do together. One commentator writes, to assure children that they are loved and accepted is the call of a parent, that they are valued for who they are and not who they ought to be or should have been or might if they try a little harder to become. Obedience must never be made the condition of parental love. A love so conditioned would not deserve the name. When a parent is obedient to the vocation of genuine love, the child's obedience may become like that of the Christians to God, a glad and loving response. Paul is walking a very, very fine line here, isn't he? He's trying on the one hand to call uh, Christians away from the pantheon of Roman gods, and on the other hand, he's trying to call them out of the religious subculture in which they're tempted to leave the gospel, and he's calling them to walk in line with the truth of the gospel together. And as a a practical example of this, it would mean that there is no violence against women or children allowed in a Christian home. God hates violence. And women, especially ladies in this church, if you're suffering from violence, please call the police. And then call the session. We want to protect you. Malachi 2.16 says... God hates violence. Children, if you're suffering from abuse in your home, would you please call the police? Would you please come talk to me or Pastor Scott or one of the elders? Our job is to shepherd you and your family. The police have the power of the sword, but the church has the spiritual power of authority over those members of our church. And it's our job as a session to protect the people of our church from abuse with the spiritual authority that the Lord has given us. He mentions slaves here. Another example is uh, the way that Paul addresses slaves. Slaves were, were, were uh, uh, and, uh, people who were employed in the home, and, and they were, uh, it was, slavery was just as horrible back then, although it was different from American slavery. It was still just as horrible in many respects. And he calls slaves. To honor their human masters precisely because those human masters are not their real master. Jesus is. And Christians who had slaves are to understand that a slave is not their property like the Roman world taught them that it was, but rather as a fellow member of Jesus' body to be loved and to be honored and to be embraced. Employers, what does this say about the way you pay your employees? Are you always nickeling and diming them? Do you provide for them good health care as able? Do you pr- provide them a good wage for what they do for you? Or is your bottom line more important to you than the livelihood of your employer, employees? Employees, are you able to submit to your employers in ways that honor the Lord? Because your true master is Christ himself. Let me illustrate how uh, this, this dynamic of employee-employer kind of worked its way out in the ancient world with slavery in particular. Uh, Onesimus, at the end of the book, Paul is addressing various people. And he addresses a, a slave whose name was Onesimus, who was owned by a Christian whose name was Philemon. You can read all about this in the book of Philemon. And uh, uh, Onesimus had run away from Philemon, and the penalty of running away from your master in Roman law was the penalty of death. And Paul looks this Roman law in the eye in the context of the early church, and he asks the whole church in Colossians 4 verse 9 to greet Onesimus as a faithful brother in the Lord. To greet him as a faithful brother in the Lord, even though he was a runaway convict. And then Paul has the audacity to apply the gospel to Philemon in the book of Philemon and says to Philemon, you should receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but you should receive him as a brother. Don't you see how radical the gospel was for ancient Roman families amidst the pagan Roman society? They redefined everything in light of the gospel. If you think about this in in our days, it's, it's hard for us to picture it Um, in concrete ways, but in Turkey, for example, do you know that when they build homes in Turkey, they don't put rebar only in their foundation, they put rebar in their roof because they know that one day, someday, their family is going to expand beyond the bounds of their parents or for their neighbors or for people in need. And their house continues it looks like this amazing like engineering marvel from MIT, the way that they're built, but they're built with rebar in the roof so that people can come be part of their family, which begs the question for us: Who is part of the Christian family? Biologically and legally, we know that it's our children, it's our spouse. But in the Christian world, a family is very fluid, isn't it? Who's part of your family? Well, who do you call part of your family? That's who your family is. People who come through your door. People who eat out of your pantry. People who take your shoes, wear your clothes, borrow things from you, like their family. And those of us who have a biological family, it's very easy for us to picture who our family is. But those of us in this room who don't have biological family, the Lord has called the church to be your family. Because even for those of us who have biological families, it is the church who is our true family, even beyond the bonds of blood. One early church theologian said, thicker is the water of baptism than the blood of family. And that is true. Paul calls, uh, calls them to, um, to be distinct in the way that they give each other equal dignity under the Lord. He also calls them not only to give each other equal dignity, but he also says you are to be a new humanity with a new identity. And you are to view everything through this new identity. I don't have time to go through every example here. In Sunday school in the next couple of weeks, you can hear more perhaps from Will, but let me just give you a couple of them. How about new identity as a single? The Roman culture taught that it was one's duty to marry and to have children. And Paul, following Christ himself, looks that in the face and says, no, that is not the only way to serve the Lord. He wished that all people could be single like himself, 1 Corinthians 7, 8. God's plan was shifting. It was changing. No longer were you to have to have have children as they did in ancient Israel to to perpetuate the family name and family line. That was the vehicle of God's covenant. And the primary one at that. But Paul here says, even if you're single, you have a family, and it's called the local church, the people of the way, the ecclesia. That is your church. What about uh, couples who don't have children? What's the practice? They are to live with a new humanity and a new identity just the same. You don't have to have a child to be a flourishing member of the church. And some of you... I know your stories. You feel this pressure to have children, and you can't. and makes you feel like you're less than God has called you to be, but He made you just like you for His glory's sake. And your family becomes the church, even if it's just the two of you, for 50, 60, 70 years. He loves you, and He's called you to practice your new humanity in the context of the local church. What about identity as, uh, a new identity as women? Listen, Paul does not speak in patriarchal tones. Jesus gave a ruling that a woman could divorce her husband. That was shocking on biblical grounds. Notice it says in Mark 10, if she divorces her husband, notice if she divorces her husband, Nobody had heard it that way. It was always when he divorced her. And in the Roman world, you could do it for whatever reason you wanted to. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is giving us injunctions for how to protect our families and marriages. But he's giving rights here to women that heretofore were new. What about new identity as a a family? Jesus' disciples honored their father and mother, yet Jesus called them to leave them. Remember when he called James and John, they left Zebedee and they left the fishing business. Peter and Andrew did the same. People saw Jesus as the carpenter of Nazareth with sisters and, 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 and four brothers, right? James, uh, Joseph, Judas, and, and Simon. But for Jesus, his family was not his fundamental identity. His identity was superseded by his Father's identity that he had given to him, his father in heaven, and he says that anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. John Matthew chapter ten, and anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The basis of family in the Christian church is not biology; it is the gospel. People will become brothers and sisters by doing the will of God, which is why the Roman world looked at the ancient church and thought that they were incestuous because husbands and wives called themselves brother and sister and the Roman world saw that they slept together and they thought, oh my gosh, what do we have here? The Roman world thought that the early church was cannibalistic because they worshipped and they partook of the body and blood. They thought that they were atheistic because they didn't worship all the pantheon of gods; They only worshipped one God They were total oddballs in the face of the ancient church. Would people say the same about us? I could go on. What about the proper perspective on inheritance and extending the family line? In Hebrew, everything depended upon the inheritance of a family. And in the ancient world, only the sons received the inheritance, except in the, um, there's two exceptions of that, right? Job's daughters received the inheritance, and um, Zelophehad's daughters also received their inheritance. But the rule was only sons inherited, but in the gospel, daughters and sons can receive family inheritance. But what Jesus says is more important than that is that you shouldn't care about your inheritance. You should primarily care about the identity you have in me because I am your inheritance. That's what he says. He says, uh, in verse in chapter three, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, the inheritance of sons and daughters of the king. He turns the whole idea of family lineage and inheritance on its head because we have our inheritance in Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how radically different the early church was in Paul and Jesus' eyes compared to the Roman world? I know there's a surprising place in John 19 that commentators, it's hard they, they really it's hard to know what they to do with it because it seems like Jesus, you know. Redesigns his family when, when he says to Mary, when his brothers and sisters undoubtedly were still alive, Jesus says that to Mary, the apostle John, you are to care for my mother. Why did he not say, James or Simon, care for my our mother together? He didn't say that to his brothers, he said it to John. Because Jesus is defining the family based upon our identity in Christ, our Heavenly Father, not in biological terms. Do you see that? I could go on and on and on. I could go into, you know... um uh, you know, new identity with in-laws, right? Your couples were called, in the ancient Near East, the couples were, were called to be part of the husband's family. But, but you know, here Jesus says, a father shall, uh, you know, a husband, and wife shall leave their father and mother and they shall become one flesh. They're a new family unit and they shall have relationships with their in-laws, but as one new family unit. That was radical in the ancient world and yet that's the, what the Lord has called us to do. The implications of this are huge. And the point is that God has called us as families to live with the gospel at the center in the way that we treat each other with equality, respect, and dignity and the way that we treat each other with a deep sense of appreciation and dignity and honor because the practices of the gospel should shape our family's life. Do they shape yours? Whether you are a man, a woman, or a child, Married or single, we are to work the gospel out in the most intimate spaces of our life, especially our families. We are to be committed to apply the gospel in the hard places. And we are preparing ourselves for our weekend together on October 5th and 6th, where we will have the chance, husband and wife, to do that together and to learn how to have good conversations together and talk about some things that might be hard because there are elephants in the room. And we are to resist the temptation on the one hand of giving in to the pantheon of modern gods we have in Oklahoma. And on the other hand, we are to resist the religious culture of trying to be better people in order for God to love us more. We are to obey because He first loved us and not to reverse that. And we live in doing so, our new identity out as God's covenant people together. So, Is your house distinctly gospel-centered? Or is there another version of the good life by which you live? A version of good news that is not good, that would rob you and will rob you ultimately of the goodness of life and the joy that your Savior offers to you in His good news. Let's pray together.